think by now most of you know I'm not an overly traditional guy. I, I like new things, innovations, especially when it comes to worship and the study of God. I like the aids that God has provided so we can dig deeper and understand more. Uh, that said, when there are things that has been developed over the centuries that are beneficial to our worship and our understanding of God, I, I don't like to just simply discard them. I like to see them as the blessings they are. And an example of one of those is the church year. The church year was not inspired by God, but rather it was developed over time by the church fathers. And part of the reasoning behind developing a church year is, is because, as can happen to us human beings, sometimes we can forget or we can skip some of the most important events in our lives, which brings us then to today, Transfiguration Sunday. Uh, I don't know if you look at things like this, but Transfiguration Sunday has its own specific celebration and designation in the chart of the church year. And part of that is, is because it closes out the Epiphany season and the Sundays that we've been studying this thing about this revelation, the seeing of God's glory, Jesus's glory, and it puts us at the doorstep of the Lenten season. This Wednesday, we start with Ash. Wednesday, which if you just from a visual perspective have to ask yourself, what is it about Transfiguration Sunday that makes it so unique and so special? Why did the church fathers think that uh, as part of our yearly cycle of uh, worship and celebration that Transfiguration Sunday merits its own event, if you will? Um, I was kind of giving this some thought and, and as I was Doing so, it occurs to me there's something unique about this Sunday, not only because of what it represents in the life and ministry of Jesus, but the way in which God has chosen to have it recorded for us, and why the Holy Spirit felt it important that it was recorded for us. I did some quick math in my, help, in my head, and um, I've surmised that over my lifetime, I've probably preached about 30 sermons on transfiguration. And for the life of me, if I'm recollecting correctly, every one of those sermons has come from one of these three gospel lessons. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the synoptics are the three areas in which God has chosen to record this unusual event for us. Which leads me then to our lesson today. There's only one other place in all of Scripture where God talks about the transfiguration, and that's our lesson this morning, and it's recorded in Peter's second letter. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were witnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven. We were with him on the sacred mountain. There's a little insight already just in reading the lesson that tells us why transfiguration is a record in Scripture. There were three times when God the Father spoke from heaven about the most important work that Jesus was doing. But the three Gospels certainly cover that. In fact, they record this event in more detail. So my mind goes to this simple question. Why on earth, if God is going to record this event four times, why does Second Peter get to be one of those times? I think this morning we might just come to learn it's for a much different reason than the other three records. This will give you just a little insight. There comes a time in everyone's life when they start to think about how many birthdays they might have left instead of how many they've already had. You see these numbers behind me? 
Well, that's supposed to be how much time I have left before I die. It's called the death clock. Yeah, there really is a website that you can go to and plug in information about yourself, and then it calculates how much time you have left. Down to the actual date, believe it or not. It's kind of sobering, isn't it? And according to my death clock, I have a little less than 40 years to live. When you're young, you don't think about death. I guess we all just kind of assume that we're going to live forever, or that that time, death, is so far off that it's not important to think about right now. And I guess I've just taken for granted, assuming that I will have plenty of time to carry out my good intentions sometime down the road. When I was young, I was so idealistic. I wanted to change the world and really believe that I could. But somehow, without even realizing it, I settled. I bought into this notion, this idea that by being successful, that would ultimately make me significant. Somewhere along the way, I traded making a difference for making a living. And so now as I sit here and I, I watch these numbers roll by, I wonder, what is life really about? Is this it? Is there more? <laughs> there's, there's got to be more. Is there a bigger story that I'm supposed to be a part of? <laughs> Tell me that there is. I think of the days, weeks, perhaps even months of my life that I've spent so much time doing things that I thought was important, but ultimately things that really had very little to no value. So much time doing things, wasting time that I'm never going to get back. So much wasted time. Psalm 90 says, For a thousand years in your sight, God, is like a single day that has just gone by. And the length of our days, maybe 70 years, perhaps 80 if we have the strength. So teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So we may gain a heart of of wisdom. I don't know if ever anybody's ever really said it to you before. I can't recall that I've actually preached it this specifically, but the transfiguration isn't about our eternal lives. It is secondarily, but the reality is it's about our earthly life. Uh, the way I want to unravel this lesson and drive that point home to you is, is basically by answering these two questions. Why the transfiguration? And I know you've heard sermons about it, uh, no doubt we all have, and many different conclusions have been provided to us, but Second Peter offers us a perspective that the Gospels do not. And the second question that I think we should answer is why Second Peter? Why of all of the possible places where God could have had this recorded for us, why Second Peter? And I think the only way to really answer the first question is if we start with the second question. And the only way to understand 2 Peter is to just take a few moments and make sure we understand 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter was written to a group of Christians, early Christians, who had left the land of Israel. And the four places that Peter lists are in that red circle. Basically, they left the land of Israel because they were being persecuted for their Christian faith. Not persecuted the way we typically think, like the Romans who were killing Christians, 
but persecuted by their fellow Jews, uh, not having a loss of life, but having a loss of livelihood. They were being culturally ostracized, and it came down to this. Since Christianity was such a new religion, and was so far outside of the traditional idea of Judaism, uh, these Christians were being accused of being very stupid and very evil. And the problem is, is that translated into their culture, meaning nobody would do business with them. They were starting to lose their homes, their businesses, obviously. So the only option they had was to leave. They settled in this area of Asia Minor, which, by the way, worked out very well because there were already many Christian churches in that area. Uh, Paul had uh, been used by God to establish them during the first and second missionary journey. Uh, the question, obviously, then, is, is why is Peter writing to them and not Paul? Both of these letters were written at a time when Paul was either in prison or he was off doing mission work in other places of the world. So it fell to Peter to be their spiritual overseer. He was the one who served as, as not just their pastor, but like their pastor's pastor. And both of these letters, if you read through them, and they're not long reads, but you will continue to get this thread of uh, information where Peter's encouraging them to remain strong in their faith. And of course, First Peter makes sense. They're being uh, persecuted by their fellow uh, Jews. And basically the message is, is this suffering is not easy, but it's temporary. Uh, and the idea of 1 Peter is much like that opening vi video. We only have a set limit of time here on this earth, which then feeds into 2 Peter, which is written to the very same people, but under a bit of a different circumstance. There's a gap between the two writings, and by the time Peter sits down to write the second letter, somehow God had revealed to him that his life would soon end. It's happening during this transitional period where the Jewish persecution is mostly going to come to an end, and the Roman persecution will begin. And that was a very physical, deadly of persecution, and that's part of God's revelation. Uh, and you might recall the gospel lesson where Jesus prophesied, Peter, when you're young, you got to do what you wanted, but when you get to the end of your life, you're going to have to do what others make you do. Your hands will be stretched out. It's a concept of you're going to be arrested, incarcerated, and then ultimately you will lose your life for the sake of the gospel. So you can imagine, while the Holy Spirit's inspiring Peter to write the second letter, with the same intent to encourage Christians to remain strong in their faith, all of a sudden for Peter this takes on a very personal uh, and important perspective because his life uh, was soon to end. There's something else, too, about these two letters, and there's a transition that takes place. Because in the first letter, he's talking about these struggles are going to be temporary, and you should see them that way. He reminds the early Christians, you're strangers here. That's why we sang the hymn. You're just passing through. Um, this life now, because of sin, is not your final destination. So look at it that way. And sometimes, and you know this from traveling, even uh, in non-spiritual ways, it's not always an easy path to take. But there's also a switch. The persecution that he addresses in the first letter was an external form of persecution. Now with the second letter, he starts to make reference to an internal form of persecution. More about that in just a second. But there's something that he says in the context of the record of the transfiguration that either we miss or we don't understand, or we don't know it. But he says, remain strong in your faith, and ultimately you participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world. 
Now that's something we're going to have to unpack, and we'll do that. But the only way we can do that is by seeing it from the perspective of Peter's record of the transfiguration. Okay, that's basically the context, that's the basis for this writing. And now let me inform you, what is that internal persecution these early Christians were now facing? And it's in our opening phrase, we did not follow cleverly invented stories. Uh, the Greek word stories, muthos. It's where we get our English word myth. And what he's talking about is a comparison of what he and the other apostles were teaching as compared to uh, within the Christian churches there, there had arisen false teachers who basically were making the claim that Jesus was not going to come back to earth. The very last promise that Jesus made us before leaving this world in a visible way, he says, I'll be back. Uh, and there is these teachers saying, no, that, that's not going to happen. And coupled with that was the idea, if Jesus is not going to return, then there will be no accountability for your life here, so that ultimately you might as well make the most of the life that you have. It's very temporary, just squeeze as much juice out of it that you possibly can. So what you see is going on is the devil were using these false teachers and some of the people were following them. They were making up these stories about Jesus which actually had no foundation in the life or ministry of Jesus and they were trying to teach the people uh, things that really truly appealed to the sinful human nature. First, life is short but that's okay. That's all there is. Does that sound familiar at all? Isn't the same message being taught by the world today? And then the second one follows closely behind. Since life is short and it's all there is, then make your life all about you. It feeds into the sinful human nature's desire to be so selfish, so self-serving, so much so that as these people were facing these persecutions, they had to choose between, do I want to keep putting up with this garbage? Or am I going to follow these guys and just get as much out of this ride as I possibly can? And so the Holy Spirit, as Peter write to them, encouraging them, don't give up your faith. It is the only thing that ultimately matters. So now you see, as we peel back the layers of Second Peter, we begin to understand the context as well as the reasoning behind why God might have Peter be the one who records the transfiguration. It is during the times of persecution, during the times of trouble, during those moments when the devil tempts us to question whether this life is really worth living, it's during those times that the Lord chooses one of the ways to give us strength and see us through is to give us glimpses of glory. And I know where your mind wants to go because that's the way my mind was trained to go is we always want to go to the glimpses of Jesus' glory. And that's true in part, but there's something else that God has Peter record something that I don't think we talk nearly enough about, but there's something about the transfiguration and the events of the transfiguration that open up to us. There's something else about Christians enduring the persecution and hardships of living in a broken world that make it all worth it, that make our lives valuable, even though they aren't what God originally created us to want to enjoy. And it's only by answering why did God choose Second Peter that we can then answer the main question, why the transfiguration? It could have been simple enough for God simply to do that with Peter, James, and John. Show them these things because these were the future apostles and part of the foundation of the Christian church. It would have been enough for God to peel back his human nature and let them see glimpses of his divine nature just for them. But God said, that's not enough. This is too big of an event. This is something we're celebrating. And so, Peter, I want you to record this for Christians and generations of Christians yet 
to come because there's value in them seeing what you see. Why? The transfiguration. And why did God feel it was important enough to record for us? And why did the church fathers feel it was so important that we should set aside one Sunday at church year to celebrate it and to remind ourselves what the transfiguration means for us? Peter answers this question in the second half of our lesson, and it talks about his eyewitness account, the things that he saw, the things that he heard, and within those things come the answer to why the transfiguration. Now, God has Peter record the transfiguration differently than the three Gospels, and we'll talk about that after this video. But I want to offer you a video that is more from Peter's perspective. It does have some of the Gospel record in there, but that's what will highlight the differences of how Peter records a transfiguration. So now let me share with you Peter's perspective of what he saw with his own eyes and what he heard with his own ears. As the time approached for the Messiah to fulfill his mission, he led three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a high mountain. There, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. A bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. The disciples never forgot what they saw that day. Later, Peter would write, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And John would say, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. But for now, the Son's glory would remain hidden in his body of flesh. It was time for the King to fulfill his mission. Now, the video did incorporate some gospel things, but let me point out a few of the differences with Peter's record. I don't know if you noticed when I read the text, Peter never mentions uh, the appearance of Moses or Elijah. And that's, that seems like a pretty big deal. Most transfiguration sermons I've heard or preached, that becomes a, a main part of the discussion. And notice that Peter, in his record of the transfiguration, never talks about his part in the transfiguration, where after the glory departs, He's speechless, and he doesn't know what he just saw. And so he suggests that Jesus is putting up those three tabernacles, those three shelters. He wants to stay up there and talk about this. He wants to ask questions. He wants to seek from his rabbi information. Why did God just do this? Why does the Holy Spirit have Peter record this in such a way where those key details are kept out of Peter's account? You notice what Peter focuses on, not on those side things. He focuses on what God the Father says and the fact that he should listen to Jesus. And after Jesus tells the three disciples to get up, the very first thing he really says to them is, do not 
be afraid. That matches perfectly with the reason for Peter's two epistles, his two letters to early Christians. And it offers us insight into something that I think maybe we don't notice enough. It is one of the three instances of all of Scripture, each of which we've now studied during this Epiphany season, three times the Father acknowledges what his Son is doing. And in this situation, when Peter records it, he's saying the voice of God the Father, acknowledging the mission of Messiah, brought honor and glory to him. Now this is where we've got to do some hard work. This is where we just have to take a breath and if you will, kind of divorce our minds from a lot of the traditional things that we've thought about uh, the transfiguration. I would like us to actually focus on what Peter records for us, specifically in these two words, Timae and doxe. They're translated as honor and glory, but I, I've given you some more of the etymological meanings, the in-depth meanings. Honor means to bring value to something. And you'll notice it shares this uh, definition of dignity. Glory, we all think we know what it is, but it's talking about dignity in something. So you understand what Peter is recording the transfiguration about is there is a reason why we give glory to Jesus and why he deserves our honor. So we don't misunderstand. As a son of God, he has his own intrinsic, intrinsic glory. He's God, after all. And for that, he deserves all honor and praise. But the Father here is now stating there's another reason why we witness this glory and share in this glory. And yes, you did hear that correctly. We share in this glory. And part of the reason why I say that so carefully is because, at least all in my life, and I'm going to suspect for many of you, we've been taught about the only time we can expect glory from God is when we cross the finish line of life. Uh, we look forward to the glories of heaven. But I don't know if it's ever been explained, and, and I'm just still now getting my head around this. There's a, a true difference between the glories of heaven and the glories of God's children here on this earth. And that's the perspective of Peter. Remember what I said. Peter recorded early in this chapter so that you may participate in the divine nature. Well, what does that even mean? Does it mean we, we, we become eternal like Jesus? That's his nature. He's the Son of God. He's always existed. We'll live forever, but we don't go back and there's no beginning to our existence. That will always be. Do we share his almighty power? Do you and I have the ability now to snap our fingers and whatever we want comes to us? I haven't possessed that opportunity because if I did, I wouldn't be driving the vehicle I'm driving. I don't know about you guys. Does it mean that we share in his omniscience? that we know everything, and even in his human nature, he could turn that on and turn that off, depending upon the context in the situation. And I don't think that applies to us, because I still have a lot of questions. I got a lot of heaven questions of God that I can't wait for him to answer. I have a lot of why this and why that. So what on earth is Peter talking about when he says to us that we are going to participate in the divine nature of the Son of God? The only conclusion I can come to is that God says you will share in his glory. In fact, that is a lesson that Paul himself says. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we share in his sufferings, it is so that we also share in his glory. And you need to understand this. And this is why grammar matters, because 
God says this to Peter in present time. He's not saying will share. And Peter says it to those early Christians in present time. You share, not you will share. He's not talking about the glories of heaven. He's talking about the glories of earth. And I think the reason why we avoid talking about things like this is because of our sinful human natures, and we're already fighting against the temptation to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But the sad truth is, is that when we don't understand this concept of Jesus's glory and him wanting to share it with us, not only do we deprive him of the worship that he deserves, but we miss out on one of the key components that God has told early Christians and also us of how we can endure the shortness of this life, and the troubles that we have while we're in it. Let me see if I can try to put it in terms that we can ultimately understand. Now, they both are teaching us that if we share in his suffering, which we do, we also share in his glory. And, and I don't know about you, but my Lutheran heritage and faith have never taken me there. I always got the part about sharing in his suffering. You're a Christian, so follow Christ. Suck it up. And usually the comfort given is one day you won't have to deal with this garbage. And that is truly comforting. But what about right now? What is this glory with which we get to participate? Well, let me tell you this way. There is glory in being a father. And I'm going to tell you just from my perspective. You can use this moms, whatever. Okay. Uh, men have glory of their own. It's the talents God gives them. Uh, it's their abilities. It's their accomplishments. That's one form of glory. We would say that's the intrinsic glory, and it would be comparable to the glory that Jesus himself has as the Son of God. But there's a specific type of glory that you can have as a father only because you have children. See, men can have all forms of glory, whether right or wrong, whether earthly or divine, but the only way in which to get this kind of glory, the glory as a father, is by having children. And within that, they enjoy part of the Father's glory. Let me try this again with another example. There is glory in being a husband. I can have all kinds of glories as a man, as a pastor, things I've accomplished, things I've learned, but I cannot have glory as a husband without my wife. And it's only by having my wife that I truly enjoy and understand the glories of being a husband, but she must participate in that. She also receives part of that glory because God has made us husband and wife. So what is this all about? Do you see now why Jesus had these three guys come to the top of the mountain and Peter specifically record the events of what he saw? He wanted us to hear the word of God and the first thing that Jesus said was, do not be afraid. Peter's context is all about struggling, living the short lives that we have in this earth, and the challenges that we face, whether from the outside or the inside, and the devil's constant temptation to try us forsake the faith, because let's be honest, life would be a whole lot easier if we didn't have to put up with the garbage of being a Christian. I'm sorry for the way that sounds, but that's the temptation. If you just give up your faith in Jesus, then life is going to be easy, because after all, Christians are stupid and evil. And that's not just a first century message. That's a 21st century message. Wouldn't you agree? And so part of the transfiguration is for us to see that it's not just to put up with this life because one day we get to enjoy glory. It's because there's a glory in suffering right now. 
Think of the occasions when God the Father speaks about his son. This is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased. What he's talking about is a form of glory in which Jesus receives because he's about to accomplish his mission. Because he's about to fulfill God the Father's promise. He deserves honor and glory on this earth because he is the fulfillment of everything God said to us. He's the very essence of that promise. And if he didn't come, Jesus said, would always have glory as God. But it's a different type of glory that he has come and is willing to take on our flesh and blood, suffer and die for us. It's to his glory. It brings value to who he is as a human being because he's willing to make himself the lowest in order to raise us up. But that doesn't happen unless we need rescue. I know it's hard to get your head around. Trust me, I've been working on this all week. It's a crazy thought that Jesus suffering for me brings him glory, but I also participate in that glory. And part of the blessing of that is to fight off and put aside the corruptions of this earthly life. You see, we have to answer these two questions in order to truly understand why the church fathers decided there was one Sunday of the church here that deserved our attention to celebrate the transfiguration. Let me see if I can't give you a little encouragement to do it from Peter's perspective. Peter said you get to participate in the nature of Christ. That means that when you endure things, when you reach the end of your mission, there is value, there is dignity, there is honor and glory in that. First and foremost, it brings glory to God. But it also brings glory to us because for the first time in our lives, we're actually living up to our creation. What does that mean? Well, originally God put us on this earth to live here forever. Well, that's changed. And God has put us in this earth to bring glory to his name, but ultimately to be productive in such a way that our lives would be blessed. God has reestablished that for us through the transfiguration. If you will, in a sense, we are consistently and constantly transfigured by God himself through his son, Jesus Christ. But the only way to get there is to first to go through the suffering. Let, let me use a couple examples. The world claims that we Christians are stupid and evil for choosing to live our lives according to the way in which God created us. Wouldn't you agree that a lot of what you're hearing in the news goes absolutely 180 degrees against what God has designed us and our lives here on this earth? And our desire to hold to God's design or his creation is considered by many to be stupid and, dare I say, evil. It's very close-minded. It's very monocular in its view. You guys really need to expand the way you think because that would show love, wouldn't it? At least that's the message I'm hearing. The world claims that we are stupid as Christians and very evil when we model for them true Christ-like love. Because real love requires sacrifice. Real love requires making ourselves lower so that others might be lifted up. That's the exact same kind of love that Jesus showed to us. And the world claims we're stupid if we think that's the way that love should be lived nowadays. Instead, the world tells us that the way to truly show love is to do whatever you want, and anybody else should be able to do whatever they want too. And that feeds into that false teaching that there's never a day of accountability. So go ahead, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Would you not agree with me that that's the consistent and constant message that we're hearing from this world? In fact, every day you can go on the internet and find a yet another new app that helps us feed into this selfish human nature and worship ourselves rather than God. 
but you Christians don't like these things. You are stupid, and you are evil. Would you not agree that the, one of the reasons why God has decided to leave us here until the day that he transitions us into heaven, as much of a challenge and as difficult as it is, is because one of our reasons here is to point to Jesus Christ. We live in a very broken and dark world, and God says, I've got light, and I've got life. And I'm asking you as my children to complete your mission and share that light with this world. There is great glory in that, not because of who we are, but because of who the light is. And yet Christ invites us to participate in that glory by accomplishing the mission, even if it means we might struggle and suffer along the way. We share in his sufferings, and so we share in his glory. Not because of who we are, but because of who he's made us, because he's transfigured us. He's taken dust and given it life and has given us his love. In fact, if you will, I think of all four accounts that Scripture records of the transfiguration, it's Peter who most effectively God has used to actually put us on top of that mountain. Not just to see what he saw, but to hear what he heard. And I hope ringing in your ears this week is that phrase of our Savior, do not be afraid. Live for why you were created. Show people the light. And in so doing, you get to participate in the glory of our Savior who brought life to this earth. And not only are we blessed by that life he gives us, but we are blessed. We get to share his glory, if you will, because we are part of the process that God has used to bring light and life into their lives. Oops. I hope you understand why the church fathers over the centuries decided it was worthy to take this day and give it its own place on the church calendar. Because not only was transfiguration a big historical event, but if we really understand transfiguration, it's still happening today. Light. It is all around us. We can see it. We depend on it. It is a visible radiation that can be seen by the naked eye. And yet, it is by light itself entering the eye that we can see at all. It is the hues and shades of each changing season, the contrasts of a sunset, the softness of a morning sky. Light maintains ecosystems and activates molecular reactions that cause living things to bloom and grow. Light was at the beginning of time. It signified the genesis of time and commands the start of every day and contests the darkness of night. Light makes all things relative. Time, space, and the frequency at which we experience them are all calculated by the constant nature of light. Our galaxy and all we know and have yet to discover within it are characterized by the reflections of light at the center of their system. If we stop and consider the world and the grandeur of the cosmos, how can we not be overwhelmed by the complexities of it all? Light. It's the most profound and necessary part of the universe, and yet it is but a mere reflection of the one who spoke it all into being. The transcendence of light points to the divine nature of its creator. Nothing is happenstance. And so here we are. We're a part of it all. We're surrounded by light, and yet we are searching desperately to find it. But true light came to us. Our innate longing for something greater is justified. He who spoke all things into being and commanded the beginning of the beginning came to us, sent by the Father, born to give life to everyone. 
a life no longer characterized by darkness. He is true light. The God of the universe, the source of light, the glory of the one and only, all of creation glorifies Him. He is here with us.